Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to this week's episode where we talk about the Republic and whether it is about to collapse entirely. We are in the midst of a genuine impeachment inquiry. This time it is not a dress rehearsal. Ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your hats. To discuss this and many other issues, I'm thrilled to have with me Seth Berman, a former state and federal prosecutor and my spirit guide to all things criminal, no offense, Seth, and indeed to all things connected to inquiries, impeachments, and everything else we've had to deal with from the beginning of this administration on. Seth, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me now. So let's just start in the middle of it, Seth, the impeachment inquiry. What do you think? The whistleblower complaint. How did we get here? The whistleblower complaint is absolutely fascinating because first of all, the, the reality is the whistleblower didn't really tell us all that much that if you weren't paying attention, you didn't already know. It was well known that Giuliani was running around. He was advertising that he was running around in Ukraine and trying to get the Ukrainian government to dig up dirt on Biden. It was reasonably clear the president was involved in that because Giuliani had said things like that over the time. But what the whistleblower complaint seems to have done is, number one, brought tremendous attention to it. And number two was point out a way in which the veil of Giuliani doing it as the president's lawyer or the president's individual lawyer, Mm -hmm. as opposed to doing it as part of his official duties. Which he has none because Rudy Giuliani has no official duties in the U.S. government. Correct. And that created just enough of a cover that I think it was hard for anyone to know what to do about it. But then once the call or the fact of the call was revealed in the whistleblower complaint. The phone call between President Trump and President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine. That's exactly right. And once that call was, um, was revealed, and then the call itself, or at least what we think is a transcript of the call. The semi-quasi kind of transcript. Exactly. That semi-quasi transcript seemed to show Trump doing exactly the core of what he's not supposed to be doing, 
um, the core abuse of power, which is essentially using the power of the U.S. government for his own personal goals. To me, one of the takeaways from this is if you want to be in the president and you want to get away with being the president and doing the stuff you want to do, it might be fine to be investigated by the former head of the FBI, Bob Mueller, but you really don't want to be investigated by some CIA desk officer who knows how to write a five-page memo. It certainly seems that way. I mean, the five-page memo did so much more damage to the president than Mueller's uh, report. And it's like not- more happened in five pages of the whistleblower complaint than in 500 pages of Mueller reports. Right. And it's not clear to me how much of that is because of the sort of boiling of the frog thing. That the problem with Mueller is that it took so long <laughs> that by the time the report was done, we'd all gotten used to all the facts in it. We were the frog in the water and it got warmer and warmer and we didn't notice we were boiling. Right. And now this all came at once. So now it's like you suddenly were thrown into the boiling water and there's no avoiding the fact that this was outrageous. This is the core outrageous, not the... Uh, kind of what Republicans started calling the process crimes. So I want to talk about the the phone call and the outrage, because there are at least two elements of the phone call. And I'm really interested in maybe it's possible to untangle them a little bit, because we're sitting here, we have a little time, we can analyze it. So on the one hand, Trump is asking Zelensky to spur an investigation of Joe Biden and his son. And that's really clear. To me, it's really clear that that's an abuse of the president's power in office for personal gain, because there's no national security interest or national interest of any kind, even plausibly, in the investigation of Joe and Hunter Biden. And that's also the part that Rudy Giuliani seems to have been most directly involved in. Correct. On the other hand, Trump is also asking on that call, in fact, he asks first for Zelensky's help in investigating what's basically a crazy right-wing conspiracy theory involving the company that first, the security company that first looked at the Democratic National Committee's hacks. Right, CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike. What the hell is he doing? And what does it have to do with Ukraine, at least in Trump's mind? So it is always very hard to untangle what people are thinking about these crazy right-wing conspiracy theories. <laughs> right. Do Trump and Giuliani actually think it's true? Or are they just trying to... Well, what's even the thing that they're supposed that we're supposed to think? Or so, do they want us to think? As I understand it, what we're supposed to think is that CrowdStrike was started by someone who was born in Russia, but is an American citizen. Mm -hmm. That person is connected to a uh, foundation. Someone donated to the foundation, or a wealthy Ukrainian donated to that foundation. And based on that string of evidence, the uh, conspiracy theory is that CrowdStrike made up the idea that Russians hacked into the DNC servers and that, in fact, it was the Ukrainians who were doing it essentially as a false flag operation to help Hillary in some way, though it's not totally clear how. Or maybe hurt the Russians. And certainly to hurt the Russians, right. And that so this is a kind of made-in-Moscow conspiracy theory. It would seem that way. Yeah. Okay, so that, if it were true, and that's an enormous <laughs> if that we have to like put up there in huge bold letters because obviously it's not true, but if it were true... Would the United States have a genuine, legitimate interest in investigating that as part of the overall question that Trump says he's asked Attorney General William Barr to investigate, namely, if he never colluded with the Russians, if there's no evidence that he colluded with the Russians, why did the world think so, which Trump thinks deserves to be investigated? Does that question deserve to be investigated? I think the answer to that is no, but it's a lot Appreciate closer. The <laughs> it's a lot closer, not so much as to whether or not it should be investigated, because of course it's absurd. So he's asking the Ukrainians to investigate something. And I think we should be 
not quick to use the president's word. It's not clear to me that he really means investigate when he says investigate. He means find dirt on. Investigate implies that some proper thing is going to happen, some search for the truth. I don't actually think the president was asking them to search for the truth of this. He was saying, find me evidence that suggests the thing I want to find. Because that's a really important and fascinating thing. Because if that's right, then there are really at least two things wrong with the phone call with Zelensky. One, the request to find dirt on Biden. And two, just the request at all and the pressure to find evidence to support this conspiracy theory or to make up evidence to support this conspiracy theory. Because that part actually involves the attorney general. And although the attorney general denies he knew anything, I don't know if it's plausible or not, but he denies he knew anything about the Biden investigation, he can't deny that he knows about this other investigation because he says he's performing it. Um, And this is relevant to an issue that I'm kind of fascinated by, which I sort of think is going to become significant in these impeachment inquiry proceedings eventually. And that is just how careful, legal, and rational is the Attorney General of the United States? Has he, as he's done so far, been very careful to act in a way that a reasonable lawyer could always defend in court? Or under Trump's sort of consistent pressure, did he cross over into wacko land by asking various countries to investigate this conspiracy theory? I'm actually going to expand that idea even further, because I think that the same question could essentially be asked in a slightly different way of the Secretary of State, Mm. right, who essentially also got involved in this. I suspect what's going on is that as the presidency now revolves around Trump's crazy whim of the moment, right, every senior official is out there trying to tamp down whatever that is. And they make certain compromises necessary to do so, which is every so often they just give in to the whim. They go investigate the latest crazy idea, whatever it is. Probably they convince themselves that that's just a side thing they're doing. But you do wonder whether or not, does Barr actually believe this crazy conspiracy theory also? Or is he making a big show of investigating it so as to keep the president happy? On the theory that there's nothing illegal or unconstitutional about the Department of Justice engaging in a pointless investigation. The president says investigate. It's perfectly permissible to investigate as long as you don't harm anybody. And if it's a crazy thing, like if the president would like us to investigate whether UFOs landed in Roswell, so you investigate whether UFOs landed in Roswell. No harm, no foul. That would be the kind of, if we had Barr here and truly off the record, maybe that's what he would say about the investigation. I assume that's what Barr would say. And Pompeo too, you're saying. Correct. I think that's probably what Barr would say. It is also possible that Barr actually believes this. And I think that's where it becomes a little bit hard to untangle what's going on. Have some of the folks in the administration reached the point of imbibing so much right-wing news that they've come around to believing theories that on their face are just absurd? So let's turn now to the actual phone call. And I want to begin with this question of whether there was just pressure, which is obvious on the face of the phone call, or whether there was some kind of a quid pro quo associated with the fact that just a few days before the call, the president had suspended $391 million of military aid to Ukraine. He did it without telling anyone the reason. Within, we know from the whistleblower complaint, within the National Security Council, at the meetings where it was announced, people wondered why the president was doing this, and there was no answer. They just were told the president wants to do this. So that's the setup. Then the president comes into the call, and he asks Zelensky for, quote, a favor. And then... Zelensky brings up Giuliani immediately before the president brings up Giuliani. And then the president says, oh, and another thing, and talks about the Biden matter. So first of all, do you think there was a quid pro quo here? Put on your prosecutor's hat. Was there, in fact, some exchange between Trump 
and Zelensky being proposed? I think the answer is clearly yes for anyone who's looking at the call fairly. I'll come back to why I think people have the other interpretation. But the the quid pro quo is, I think there may actually be two quid pro quos in the call. The first one is about the money, uh, or at least the supply of military aid. The fact that Trump had suspended the aid, we don't yet know whether or not the Ukrainians knew that. Um, they certainly knew that they hadn't yet gotten it, and they knew that it was held up. But whether or not they understood that this call was a way to break that through, we don't know because it's not on the call. So let's put that aside for the moment. Although, can I just add, as a, maybe it's just a footnote, we know from the whistleblower complaint that after the call, the Ukrainian president website actually said something along the lines of, we had a good call with the president, investigations will get started that will remove the obstacles to our good relationship. So we do know that within a few moments after the call, they were interpreting it this way. But go back to your point. Well, we know they were interpreting about the good relationship. And I think that's where the other interpretation we'll get to in a minute comes mm -hmm. from. It's okay. like the Ukrainian president didn't say, and we're expecting to get our money soon, right? <laughs> he said something that no doubt was code for that, but he didn't actually say that. He said that the, there had been something that was obstructing the relationship, and that was obviously the freezing of the money. Anyway, go on. You're, so I, I think that is the broader context, but mm -hmm. focus just for a moment on the call itself yeah. and forget the broader context, which isn't the right thing to do, but at least it's a place to start. Mm -hmm. On the call itself, the comment about, I need you to do me a favor and look at uh, Joe Biden and his son comes immediately after, literally, like the sentence after, uh, Zelensky asks for anti-tank weapons. And Trump says, okay, I need you to do me a favor. So in that sense, there was a literal ask, the response to which is, I need you to do me a favor. Mm -hmm. So it is definitely true that nobody used the words, unless you do me this favor, I will not give you what I asked for. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, literally nobody talks that way. You don't have to start espousing that this is a mob-like conversation to understand that people often do exchanges without actually spelling out the if versus, you know, if then part of the conversation. Right. I point my gun at you. I don't have to say your money or your life. I expect that you're going to give me your wallet. Would you, as a prosecutor, have gone into court to prosecute a public corruption case with a phone call, tape of a phone call, with about as much connection to the quid pro quo as this phone call has? I think that there's no question. Yes, everyone, every prosecutor I know would do that. The, the connection between the ask and the other ask, right? Mm -hmm. The ask for the for the weapons and the, the ask for the and favor. The quo, yes. yes, are right there. Usually, these cases fall apart because there's much less connection between the quid and the quo than there is on this call. Correct. Right. So this so is one you'd, you'd go in as a prosecutor. You wouldn't just go into the court. You think you'd be like, I'm going to win this one. I, not only that, I think you would walk into court and say, this tape has a very clear quid pro quo on it. Wow. He asked for one thing, and his response is, you need to do this instead. And is that why, so just to, to give a word of background to, to listeners, when the complaint arose and we heard about it, I immediately grabbed my phone and I texted you immediately and I said, what's the crime? And you immediately texted me back, public corruption. You, in fact, you just used a number. You wrote back Section 872. So I, I'm embarrassed to say I had to look that up to see if that was public corruption. And is that why you thought it was public corruption right away? Because it resembled those kinds of cases? Absolutely. It's the Normally, these kinds of cases come up where a congressman says, oh, we'd like to help you. I'd love to be able to help you. I also need to get reelected. It's much vaguer. <laughs> Usually, you don't say, I need your vote on this bill. All right, I need you to do me a favor. 
Okay, so now talk about the other interpretation, which is presumably the interpretation Actually, that Republicans... Before, okay, before I get to that, there's yeah. one other quid pro quo, I think, that's in the call that's gotten a lot less attention, which is at the very end of the call, again, they're talking about the favor. And Zelensky says, I'd really like to come visit the White House, which is its own kind of favor that the president could grant. Hmm. It is extremely important to the Ukraine president to be seen as being a close ally of the president. Mm -hmm. And they had been trying to get a meeting with the president in the White House for a while. And Trump's response is something like, all right, you know, we'll look at that. And it's clear that he's dangling yet another favor in front of him, not just the money and not just the weapons, but also this other favor of the White House visit. Now, if that were all that was there, I think it's a touch mushier because the White House visit is arguably not an official act of the president, although I think it oh, probably I think it is. is. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's also in there and really hasn't gotten, I think, the attention it probably deserves. And, you know, it's important to note in this context, before we turn to the, the alternative viewpoint, that this kind of dangling and pressure is completely normal for a president if he's not seeking personal gain for his own political reelection, right? I mean, this is what governments do to each other all the time. Presumably, if we had 100 tapes of 100 phone calls by American presidents to foreign officials, maybe it's more polite and more subtle, but we're always trading and making demands and pressuring them to do stuff. It's just supposed to be stuff in the national interest, not for the personal gain of the president. Correct. And that's almost certainly what Joe Biden had actually done here, which is that Biden also told the Ukrainians that they couldn't get American money unless they dealt with corruption. It appears by all accounts of what happened back then that Biden and virtually every other Western government was pressuring for the firing of a prosecutor who was famously corrupt and who was not, in fact, investigating Hunter Biden or anyone else. And we're going to come to him later. Uh, this is the prosecutor Lutsenko, who is going to be a non-trivial player. He's going to he's not yet a household name, but the guy's on the edge of becoming a household name as this inquiry proceeds. But we're, we're going to come to him in a little while. So, OK, with all that build up, let's imagine now, you know, you were a prosecutor. Now you defend people for a living, alleged criminals. President calls you and says, take the case and leave it aside whether you would take the case. Imagine you've taken the case. What's the defense that you would raise for the president? What's the interpretation you would offer to get him off the hook here? Well, I'm going to answer that a slightly different way. The interpretation that Republicans have been offering, I'm mm -hmm. not sure it's the one I would offer, but that they have been offering is that, well, there's no literal quid pro quo. When you look in this conversation, never once does someone say, if then. That's a bad defense because in court, those defenses fail. I think that's a bad defense because it will fail, yes. But um, what is clever about it, I, I guess, is that it, ultimately this is a political, not a legal mm -hmm, argument. Mm -hmm. And it sort of has the veneer of, of believability to it. What's I it's think- plausible deniability. Sort of, yeah. It's somewhat plausible. It sounds legalistic, right? And they're going down the road of, well, if this isn't a crime, then you can't impeach, which is- Also not true. Also not true, but, but something that is probably their best argument here. Mm -hmm. What would you do if- it were up to you if you you could design the defense from scratch. I think you'd want to start going down the path of uh, this was a misunderstanding and that's not what he meant. The mm. problem here is that the president has made a whole bunch of other statements that support the idea that this is in fact what he meant. And Giuliani is running around making a whole bunch of statements that also make it clear this is what he meant. So uh, they're a little far down that road to try to reframe what this conversation was about. I had thought that one thing they could try to say about this misunderstanding, and maybe this is a little bit too inside the weeds of the phone call, is that all Trump intended to do in the call was to bring up the investigation of CrowdStrike, 
And he never intended to bring up the Hunter Biden uh, investigation. And he only did because when he brought up the CrowdStrike, which is the thing that he brings up right after the Javelin missiles are mentioned, Zelensky then misunderstood and immediately brought up Giuliani, who was primarily working on the Biden thing. And then Trump kind of went with it. I mean, that may not be a, may not be a great defense that I, I wasn't going to commit a crime, but then he, he offered me the opportunity. Because if you think about it, in the call with the Australian leader, which has come up subsequently, it seems like they only talked about investigation of the 2016 collusion investigation. They didn't talk about Biden, which I guess is partly because Biden didn't have anything to do with Australia. So the problem I have with that defense mm -hmm. is that whether or not he intended to bring up the Giuliani thing, the core problem with having brought up the Giuliani thing is that it blew apart the plausible deniability that they sort of had about what Giuliani was doing, yeah. which is that Giuliani was freelancing. Hearing suddenly that the president 100% knows what Giuliani yes. is doing and is telling Zelensky to follow it is actually the worst possible thing he could say, whether it was on purpose or not, because it essentially brings Giuliani's activities and numerous statements into the picture and makes it almost mm -hmm. impossible to deny that he was doing it at the direction of the president. It's a fantastically good point. And it reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about, about Giuliani. So I had the intuition somewhere over the last few months that Rudy Giuliani had become Donald Trump's new Michael Cohen. Like when he was just at the Trump Organization, not the president, Donald Trump used Michael Cohen as his quote unquote lawyer. We now know that a lot of what they did wasn't exactly legal, but used Michael Cohen to be his fixer, to go around doing the stuff that he didn't want to have his hands on himself. And then he lost Michael Cohen after Cohen was you know, convicted of a crime. And he needed someone to play this role. And it's like Giuliani stepped into the role. So first, I want to know, do you think that analogy makes some sense here? And second, is it different insofar as by owning all the, what Giuliani has done, Trump has broken the benefit of using your lawyer to go around and do your dirty work for you? I think there's a lot to that analogy. Um, so I like that. Um, I think that, yes, he has broken it. And he's actually broken it in two ways. One has nothing to do with Giuliani being a lawyer, right? Every politician has someone whose job it is, to some extent or another, smooth things over. Most politicians, I think, are smart enough to know that they and that person should have a certain distance between them so that they can not just plausibly deny, but actually be able to <laughs> deny that they know what that person did. Trump doesn't operate that way, right? He doesn't have that level of subtlety. Even to be able to say the sort of, you know, who will rid me of this troublesome priest and then let someone do it without actually ordering someone to do it, I feel confident that Trump would probably just order someone to get rid of the troublesome priest. Right. He's Instead of saying, who will rid me of this troublesome priest, he's like, yeah, that Beckett guy, someone shoot him. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's the kind of thing. So, okay, let's turn now to what's about to happen, to the full dress impeachment inquiry, followed by, it seems very likely to me, a full dress impeachment vote in the House, and then something will turn to the question in a moment of what in the Senate. So what are your you know, bookmakers' odds that Donald Trump will be impeached by the House of Representatives, that a majority of members of the House of Representatives will vote to impeach him and send the case to the Senate? I think we're on a glide path where that is all but certain at this point. Okay. And what quirks or surprises do you expect along the way to that vote? I mean, could they vote on that, you know, in a matter of weeks? Does it necessarily have to take months where they work through lots of details? Will the Republicans in the House try to push back at all since they don't have the votes? How do you imagine that playing itself out? Well, I think Republicans in the House have very little power because 
the majority in the House has all the power. Mm -hmm. So aside from making outrageous statements or asking a bunch of questions that are you know, self-serving in some way, there's not a whole lot Republicans can do in the House. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that they will throw in a bunch of roadblocks. I think the Trump administration at some point will realize that releasing the tape and being as open as they've ever been was a terrible mistake and that they will attempt to close the door and stop cooperating. We're already starting to see this happening. So then on this theory, on your theory, the Trump administration can start being obstructionist. They can, and that runs the clock, right? That runs the clock as we get closer and closer and closer to November 2020. Why does that benefit them? Isn't it better for them to get this all over with quickly? I think that there are two ways to look at that. So one is get it over with quickly and then they can move on, right? And that is an advantage, but I think it also becomes harder and harder for this process to be maintained the closer it gets to the election, because it begins to seem absurd that you're trying to throw out a president who's about to be voted on. And maybe reelected. Correct. So that's one answer. I think the second answer is, look, their concern is not ultimately that they're going to get impeached by the House. The concern is that ultimately some senators, enough senators turn on them that he either gets thrown out of office or it becomes impossible to maintain that this is entirely a democratic thing. So even if he doesn't get thrown out of office, if 10 senators, 10 Republican senators mm -hmm. vote with the Democrats, mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to paint this as only a Democrat could think he did anything wrong. Right. So how do you prevent that? And it could be that the answer to how you prevent that is you make sure worse stuff doesn't come out. But it also might be that if you look like you're blocking everything, that gives some reason for Republicans in the Senate to say, well, gee, we think he did obstruct justice or obstruct the inquiries of Congress. And that's a reason to vote against him, too. But to me, it feels like that ship sailed long ago. The president's been obstructing Congress for the last year, and not a single Republican has complained about it. Right. Is there anything, you said we're on a glide path to almost certain impeachment. Can you imagine anything that would cause the Democrats to say, you know what, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. Let's imagine that polls come in that tell the Democrats that a lot of their base thinks impeachment is a mistake because, you know, in the end, it's going to distract uh, the country from the 2020 election. I don't anticipate that happening. I think there's a different set of polls that might create a problem. My mm -hmm. guess is the Democratic voters in polls will kind of come around on impeachment if they haven't already. Right. Um, in fact, I think that those one, voters are going to vote against Trump anyway, impeachment or no impeachment. Correct. So it almost doesn't matter what they think. I think a bigger problem is they do rely on certain moderate uh, or Democrats from moderate districts. Mm -hmm. And if those Democrats get cold feet about whether or not this is a good idea, mm -hmm. uh, then I think the impeachment process could run into some, some rocky waters. Can Nancy Pelosi effectively stop the whole thing herself, or does she need a vote? I mean, is she in a situation where Donald Trump says she is no longer the Speaker of the House, by which he doesn't literally mean she's not the Speaker of the House. He means she doesn't really have the center of power in the House anymore. The power has shifted to the part of the party that's been demanding impeachment, like a lot of the presidential candidates have been doing. That is to say, to Pelosi's left. Is it realistic for her to stop it at some point? Could she do it? I think it will, at this moment, probably not. But is it possible that some set of circumstances or polls could come out later? Maybe. But the other option she has is she could bring it to a vote and it could lose. But that would, it would only lose if a significant number of Democrats voted against impeachment. And it seems to me that even a Democrat in a moderate district can't get away with voting against impeachment at this point. I mean, how can you get up in the House of Representatives as a Democrat and cast any vote that is perceived as a vote for Donald Trump? You'll be primaried and it'll be all over for you, no matter where you're from. 
I think you're right. And thus, it's a little hard to understand. Yeah. How so bottom line, impeachment is coming. Okay, so once impeachment comes, according to the Constitution, we're supposed to move to a trial in the Senate. And Mitch McConnell has said, don't worry, I will hold a trial in the Senate. But as for how long it's going to last, he said, that's another matter altogether. What's the fastest and the most minimalistic proceeding that McConnell think can get away with in the Senate? And remember, Chief Justice John Roberts will be there presiding, but he's just one guy. The rest of the Supreme Court doesn't come with him. I remember actually watching the Clinton impeachments when I was a law clerk at the Supreme Court. That's how I got a ticket. And, you know, Chief Justice Rehnquist was just sort of sitting there in his fancy robe. And he was like an ornament to the room, but he didn't really get to say or do almost anything. So I think this is probably more in your area than mine. But my understanding is that they could just go ahead and have a vote on day one. Should we impeach the president? I don't think they could get away with that. I mean, to my mind, the Constitution clearly imagines a process in which the impeachment is recommended like an indictment. And then there's some kind of proceeding or discussion or trial in front of the Senate. And, you know, historically, trials in, in Britain, in Parliament, trials for impeachment were a serious undertaking. And they went on for years. You know, the most famous and influential impeachment that the framers knew about was the impeachment of Warren Hastings, who had been uh, the governor in India, effectively. And he was impeached in the 1770s. And that trial went on for, I want to say, seven years you know, I mean, it was like, you know, front page news for a lot of that time, too. And the framers knew all about it because it was in, in the newspapers. They contemplated some kind of a trial-like process. But couldn't they decide that they're going to let the, you know, the House managers of the impeachment come in, make their presentation, put the call into evidence, and then vote on whether or not that is sufficient grounds for impeachment? And a bunch of Republican senators come out and say, even if we assume this is all true, I don't think it's grounds for impeachment. They vote and it's over. Right. Sort of like a directed verdict process. Correct. In a, in a courtroom. Yeah. I, I think they might be able to get away with that. They won't want to go down in history, I think, as the people who made the impeachment process look like a sham. They may not have to hear lots of witnesses. I, I get you there. I don't know. I think there's going to be tremendous pressure on them to hold something that looks a little bit like a trial for at least a few days. I mean, you know, when we go after a Supreme Court nominee, that already takes a week of hearings. I have a hard time imagining them spending less time on it than they would on would on that. Maybe. I mean, I think formally, I guess they could do it, but I doubt if they really think they could get away with it. But what so what difference does that make? So they have a sham trial of one to five days mm -hmm. at the end of which they, they vote, vote and they acquit him. And either a bunch of those uh, senators from states that are purple, I guess, or blue, mm -hmm. um, decide to vote with the president or they vote against him. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter because there still there aren't, aren't going to be enough them. numbers to get to an actual removal. So I mean, okay. that's assuming that the tide doesn't break. Like right. there's also the possibility that the tide breaks and at some point Republicans say we'd be better off with Pence. So let's talk about that. What does it take for the tide to break? And then we'll come to the question of what are the odds of the tide breaking? But what would it take? What are the kinds of facts that would have to enter into the mix in your view that would lead enough Republicans to say, we're better off with Pence? I'm actually of the view that the answer to that has nothing to do with the facts. I think the answer to that probably has something to do with the polls. I, well, what will move the polls, that is the question. And I don't know- Let's say the president called right. a dozen countries and put pressure on them, or maybe a dozen is too much, but three or four other countries. And we, as a gradual drip, 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 we find out that the president has been going around pressuring lots of countries, essentially to make up evidence to help him in his political campaign. My general view of the moment we're in is that, as people say, nothing matters. And what that seems to mean is that no matter what happens, the polls are basically steady. 
somewhere between 50 to 53% of Americans think the president is, you know, disapprove of his mm -hmm. performance. performance and something between, you know, around 41 to 43% approve. My guess is that no matter what comes out, that will basically be true. Now, what happens if some of the people in that gap, right, the five to mm -hmm. whatever percent it is in that gap, mm -hmm. you know, what happens if they come around and say, you know what, I don't like this either. So I don't know what the answer to that is, but I'm not sure it would matter. So if you're right about that, I mean, I, I hear everything you're saying and it seems logically correct. If that's the case, there's almost no chance of the tide breaking and Republicans voting to remove. It's close to a zero chance because as you say, that core, you know, they could hear, I mean, it may not be quite the Trump position that they could hear that he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, but it's pretty close to saying that they wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't abandon him. And if that's the case, if you're a Republican, there's no way you're better off going into the election with Pence, because we know that that 41% base of Republicans like Trump, but we have no idea if they feel as strongly about Pence. And Pence certainly can't rally the base the way Trump can, especially if the Republicans have somehow admitted via removal that there's something wrong with Trump. So in that scenario, you're actually saying this is a kind of foreordained conclusion, like Trump is going to be acquitted by the Senate full stop. Well, I'm not quite saying that because I think there's one exception I'll come to in a second. But okay. I, I want to respond to your point about Pence first, which is I actually agree with you that if they uh, Republicans vote to impeach Trump, they are all but conceding the next election. The reason to do that might be that they're better off letting the next election happen and not as a landslide and then regrouping over the course of the next four years, essentially fast forwarding the post-Trump era. One interesting thing about this is it shows you that the timing really matters. So when Republicans signaled that they were going to abandon Richard Nixon and he therefore stepped down rather than been removed from office, it was still early enough for them to think that once Gerald Ford became president, they would have a shot at the 1976 election. It still wasn't clear at that point. It was still really late 74 by the time that happened. And we still didn't know who the Democratic nominee was going to be. And it was still conceivable that Ford could win. And Ford didn't beat Carter, but he put up a reasonable show considering that a Republican president had just been impeached. Now the timing is different because we're so much later in the cycle. So it seems very, as you say, hard to imagine the Republicans thinking we remove Trump and then we go on to, to win the election. So but right. what's the scenario where things so, could genuinely... So this is an, a, probably a somewhat unsatisfying answer, but I do think that when uh, these kinds of regimes, if I may say that, crumble, mm -hmm. they crumble instantly. They don't crumble bit by bit. So what I don't think we're going to see happen is Republican senators coming out in onesie twosies saying, you know, other than maybe Mitt Romney, right. you know, saying, I disapprove of this. Mm -hmm. I think that there have the, to be one. It would have to be in one fell swoop. In one fell swoop. But what's the swoop? What do we need to hear? I mean, let's imagine that on one of these calls, or maybe on this tape, we find out that the president literally said, "Quid pro quo: You do this, I do this." Would that do it? I would like to think the answer to that is yes, <laughs> but I honestly don't know. What else could what, what else could could bring us to that point of collapse? Just some out of the blue new factoid that comes out. I mean, you know, one thing that makes me think there could be something like this out there is looking at how Donald Trump is reacting in real time to this inquiry. He doesn't seem like he's unrattled. Of course, he's escalating his rhetoric. You would have expected that under all circumstances. But he seems unhinged isn't a word we can really use because he's often used rhetoric like this. But the way he's kind of lashing out in this non-planned, instinctive, and it seems to me kind of threatened way, does make me wonder if he thinks that he's in trouble here. 
I agree. And maybe, maybe that what causes the dam to break is a, a sense that he's out of control. I mean, is there something that he could do? Maybe not even an unknown fact, but a, a thing yet to happen. You know, he launches a war against Iran or something. In, he's not going to do that. In what seems like a transparent effort to change the subject that horrifies people. I mean, we ha think of the Wag the Dog scenario. That's a, a movie called Wag the Dog. And then Bill Clinton, in the middle of his impeachment, actually did commence the bombing of um, Serbia over Kosovo, the bombing of Serbia over Kosovo. And that wasn't enough to get him removed from office. So I don't, I don't think that a war would, would do it. And I also don't think Donald Trump wants to go to war. And I, it's nothing on Twitter. He could tweet literally anything, and it will not suffice to get him removed by Republicans. It does seem that way. Okay, so we think that may, we're, we're hard-pressed to come up with a scenario where Trump would appear to be so far over the edge that he would be removed. I just want to add a little footnote here before I turn to the grand question of what history is going to say about all of this. And that little footnote is, it's quirky, but it's kind of interesting. In principle, there is a scenario where Trump could be impeached and removed and still run for re-election and win and become president again. And the reason for that is a constitutional quirk. So in the clause of the Constitution that says what happens if you're impeached, it says there's two things that can happen to you. You can be removed and you can be disqualified from holding any office of trust under the United States. Now, under traditional interpretation of impeachment, it's not enough to be removed for the disqualification principle to kick in. Rather, Congress has to do two things. It has to, the Senate has to both vote to remove you and separately vote to disqualify you. And in almost all cases of impeachment, they only do the former. There actually are a few cases where they've done both. But if they don't, you can get back involved. And so, in fact, there is, I was amazed to discover this, a sitting representative in Congress right now, a member of the House of Representatives, who is a federal judge, was impeached and removed by the Senate, ran for Congress, got elected to Congress, and has been serving in Congress ever since. So Donald Trump could, in theory, be impeached and removed, run and win. I know that's a kind of far out scenario, but it doesn't seem out of bounds to me. I have to think that if we reach the point where Republicans in the Senate are willing to vote to remove him from office, the last thing they'll want is the nightmare of him turning around and running again. So you think they would actually then put in the disqualification thing? For their own sake. For their yes. own sake, so he doesn't come back after them. Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's right. Okay, the view of history. For a long time in this presidency, uh, there's been a debate, a quiet debate among Democrats saying, you know, should we impeach or should we not impeach? We've got enough evidence to impeach. It might be a political mistake. Let's wait on Mueller. A lot of shilly-shallying around this issue. Now things seem to have changed. And Nancy Pelosi's answer, at least when she's spoken about it publicly, is it's not that this is so much worse than what Trump has done before. This is just clear and explainable. When historians look back on this period and ask, why did impeachment happen now? Is that going to be a sufficient answer for them? I suspect that the answer to that will depend a lot on what happens in the next year. If Donald Trump is reelected, assuming he survives this impeachment scandal yes. and he gets reelected. Which, I, by the way, still the upshot of our conversation is that the most probable event is that he survives by far and that there's a reasonable chance, I think we both agree, that he'll get reelected. Correct. And if those things happen, I think that this will be seen as, you know, one step in the process of the dismantling of the Constitution. But all of that will depend on what he does in his second term. I assume that it will be even more outrageous things than he did in his first term because he'll have even fewer constraints then. If, however... Because he will have been impeached and he'll be like, 
I mean, we know that the day after the Mueller investigation was over, he called Zelensky. So what's it going to be like if he's been impeached and not removed? He's really going to feel like Lil and one re-election and, and one re-election maybe yeah. isn't isn't hoping to serve another term after that, although who knows? Right. Right. I think that at that point, all bets are off. And I think it will then become a step in the process of the dismantling of of what had been our system of constitutional government, maybe maybe on a path to some other system, but it's not going to be the same system. So here's a big question. In that story, that incredibly depressing story, is it good or bad that the Democrats tried via impeachment? So let me put a hypothesis to you. The hypothesis would be this. You know, someday we're going to die and go to Valhalla and, you know, meet James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, or at least in my fantasy world, that's where I go. And that's my first meeting I take when I get to Valhalla. And, you know, they're going to say, we told you this could happen. You know, we told you that foreign powers would seek to be in the ascendant. And we told you that we created the impeachment proceeding for this circumstance. What did you do? You know, what did you take action? And I have the hypothesis that even if the Democrats can't remove Trump, that they might be justified in going forward now just so that they can say in front of the judgment of history, we tried. We tried to save the republic. We had a president who openly abused power. We tried to vote him out. Okay, the people weren't with us. And as the founding fathers would be the first to acknowledge, if the people lack political virtue, it is the end of the republic. I can't, there's no fix to that one. The alternative view would be no. You know, don't do something that's going to make it worse for the republic. We're better off not trying because then we'll have a Trump who's empowered by the failure of impeachment. And we shouldn't have even done that. We should think only about practical consequences, not about the judgment of history. Where do you come down on that debate? I think we reached the judgment of history point. But I also think that part of what informed Pelosi up till now was fear of the Clinton situation, which is that he gets impeached and gets more popular. At least that's how it's remembered. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's perfectly clear that's what actually happened, but that's certainly how it's remembered. I think for a bunch of reasons, that position became untenable, mostly because this was such a clear slap in the face. And it particularly, what he's accused of doing is attempting to influence the next election. If you thought the only way to get him out of office is by voting him out of office, you can't then let him try to put his finger on the scales to prevent that very thing from happening. So it's really the perfect storm on that view. I mean, that's a good answer. It says it's not just that this is clearer. It's that everything else that happened in 2016, and that election was over because although the Democrats won, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, Trump won the election. But if you're talking about 2020, if the conduct that's alleged is trying to subvert the 2020 election, the Democrats had to act because it's forward looking. And what's the alternative if you don't act now? I don't know that, th that it will make that much difference in terms of empowering Trump. Once it comes out that he's trying to influence the 2020 election. Which it has come out at this correct, point. Correct. For the Democrats to do nothing also says the field is yours. Do whatever you want. Although the, uh, the other thing it could be saying is we've told the public about this. The public knows about it. And now we're going to vote it out. You know, now we're going to actually see who wins the election. I mean, you could see that argument, you know, put all that was the Pelosi argument up until a few weeks ago, put all the eggs in the 2020 basket, say to the electorate, the president's trying to con you, the president's trying to play you, the president's trying to get help from Ukraine to influence you, you know, resist that influence. And I suppose you can do that via impeachment, but you could also do that not via impeachment. Yes, but we don't know what we don't know. So what else is he doing, right? What if he's also making a side deal with the Russians to actually hack the electoral equipment and change the votes? Not everything can be resisted. But now, you, but now, I mean, you're right. But that 
to me, heads off in the direction of conspiracy. Not that the Russians might not try to do that. That's improbable, but not totally conspiratorial, but rather that the Trump administration would collude in that because as we know, when it came to the last election, they came very close to the line of colluding with the Russians, but they didn't. No, no, we don't know that. What we know is that there was never evidence that they actually colluded. What we have this time that's different is actual evidence of collusion, direct evidence of collusion. Right. We still don't know what we don't know. And I'm not saying- What we have now is evidence of attempted collusion. All right. But in a much clearer way than we had with the last election, Mm -hmm. right? If a phone call like this had come up about 2016 with Putin, where would we be? I think that Mueller's report would read very differently if there were the transcript of a phone call in which- Trump laid out this same type of deal with Putin. So when we meet Madison and Hamilton, they're going to say what? They're going to say, okay, good that you tried. But in the end, it's all about the people. You know, will the people be convinced? And in the end, I think that measurement will come less from the impeachment process than from the 2020 election. I mean, in some sense, what I hear you saying, and I think maybe I agree with this, is that the 2020 election is one of the most important in the history of the republic not so much because of Republican versus Democrat or because of the future of the country with respect to any given policy as because it will be the judgment of history on how much a president can subvert the Constitution openly and still have a shot at getting reelected. I believe that's true. But let's assume for the moment that the Democrats win the next election. I think there's another way in which this, this fight may yet reverberate back that is worth at least pondering, which is The moment that happens, let's assume that two years later, as has become the pattern, Republicans regain control of the House or the Senate Mm -hmm. if they don't already have control. Mm -hmm. Do they immediately turn around and impeach the Democratic president? And I think the answer to that may end up being yes, because this will be seen on the right as the coup that Trump says it is. And I worry that I don't think there's a way around this problem, but I think that we have to be mindful of the fact that this is going to feel like we are now normalizing to some, we are normalizing the impeachment process to throw out a president we do not like. That already, Republicans flirted with that with Obama, but never actually got there. They talked about impeaching Obama, though they didn't have any grounds and were never able to produce any. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether or not they will be as restrained, if I could even use that word, as they were with Obama, with the next Democratic president. So in that sense, we didn't dodge the bullet when after Bill Clinton's impeachment, when many people said the same thing, you know, Next, the Democrats are going to do it, and then the Republicans will do it. But it didn't happen right away. But the argument would be that in a historical perspective, 20 years later, we did have another impeachment. And since it had been, you know, since 1868, when they came around to it in 1998, it's a long, you know, stretch of time, 130 years. This time, it only took 20. And then you could imagine that it'll then take 10 and 5, and then we could enter into a world of constant impeachments. And that is not the world that the framers anticipated. Well, we're going to have to find that, all that out. And in this extremely fascinating and challenging period of time, all we can do is try to understand what the Constitution requires, try to live in some accordance with its dictates, and keep on watching our news feeds and find out what extraordinary revelations will come next. Seth, thank you for uh, clarifying all this and talking it through with me. I feel like I'm a little more pessimistic about the inevitability of certain events after talking to you than I was when I started, but I feel like I'm enlightened with respect to what may happen. So thank you very much. Thank you, Noah. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. 
This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. And now, our sound of the week. Why you that was the sound of chaos in Hong Kong, a sound that heralds a genuine split screen for the government of the People's Republic of China. On the one hand, as you just heard, Hong Kong is in the midst of the worst protests that it's seen in the modern historical era, direct challenges to the authority of mainland China on the island. And yet, at the same exact time, in Beijing, the government of China celebrated the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic and, in effect, the victory of the Communist Party in the long historical process of bringing China into the modern era and turning it into a major global power. A centerpiece of that celebration was a rather extraordinary military parade. Oh, underwater vehicle after underwater vehicle, innovative unmanned drone after unmanned drone paraded through the streets of Beijing, signaling to the world that China was not merely one of the most significant economies in the world, not merely enmeshed in an increasing and extending set of relationships with economic partners, but increasingly is emerging as the world's 
second genuine superpower. Not yet directly competing with the United States globally, but increasingly capable of doing so, and certainly capable of competing with the United States in the region around China itself in Asia. So what are we to make of this extraordinary split screen that faces China? One way to think of it is that the Hong Kong protests are in fact, in historical terms, more of a blip in the rise of China than they are what most people in the West have taken them to be, a reminder that China is fundamentally an autocracy. Seen from the perspective of the longer swath of history, China's rise is now an accomplished fact. There's no going back. Any goal by the United States to limit, cabin, or contain China is going to have to take place against the backdrop of China's tremendous economic growth and China's tremendous military improvements. That means that we're increasingly moving to a world that is not unipolar, in which there is a single superpower, or as the French would sometimes put it, hyperpower in the United States, but rather something a little bit closer to what we saw in the Cold War when there were two competing powers. Indeed, that's what made me, already almost a decade ago, think that we're entering a period not of Cold War, but of Cool War between the United States and China. The Hong Kong protests, though they symbolize and remind us that China's government is autocratic, don't fundamentally undercut that geopolitical analysis. The island of Hong Kong may be full of unrest, but that is not sufficient to derail China. I think that when historians look back on the 70th anniversary, that's the take they're more likely to have. Yet there is an important message associated with the realities of what's happening in Hong Kong. And it is the reminder to China's leaders, and particularly to Xi Jinping, that just because you're a superpower doesn't mean every part of your increasing empire will do what you want. That's a lesson that you don't really have to think about when you're in the process of rising, but you do have to think about when you're in the process of expanding. There will be global actors, including actors who are just a bunch of teenagers in a place like Hong Kong of no geopolitical significance, who nevertheless are capable of interfering and blocking you from doing what you want, and who can enable you not to have the global feel-good story that you're trying to accomplish. That is a message that we need to remember because it's a reminder that China's rise is interwoven with the question of how China governs itself. Through much of the period of its rise, China was governed by a broad elite of Chinese communist power elders who shared power amongst themselves and indeed alternated power in 10-year cycles. They do not have that structure anymore. Today, Xi Jinping has emerged as the single dominant leader of China, more on the model of Mao than on the model of those who immediately preceded him. If you run the world that way, there's no guarantee that you can sustain and pass along the structures of authority over the long term. Dictatorship is smoother in a 10 or 20 or even 30 year way, but dictatorship is not smoother when it comes to moments of transition because again, the unruly public may get in the way of the transitions that you want. The genuine challenge that faces China going forward is to consolidate and stabilize its form of government. Xi Jinping has actually moved China backwards with respect to transitions from one generation of government to another. Sure, he's got the capacity to reduce corruption, which is a genuine systemic risk to the People's Republic. Yet in doing so, by consolidating power, he's opened himself to the possibility that the small 
voices at the periphery of his empire, and it is increasingly an empire, can interfere with the smooth operation that he actually wants. And to me, that's the takeaway of the split screen. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like this is this is not right how can a person get killed and no one knows anything I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover The Nameless Man listen wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad free subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus plus.